0: Take a Bible this morning, find Romans chapter 5. Corey read the first five verses. In just a little bit, we're going to pick up in verse 6 and go down through verse 11. There's some notes. You can follow along with what we're going to talk about in the bulletin this morning. This is week 8 of 9 in our series, The Character of God. And so here's the 9 that we're covering in this series. We've talked about God's holiness, His self-existence, his sovereignty, his goodness, faithfulness, power, last week his patience. This morning we're going to talk about God's wrath, and next week we're going to talk about God's love. I want to start with some wisdom from one of my favorite authors, Louis Burkhoff. His book, Systematic Theology, is one of my favorites. He makes this point talking about God and his character. He says, the only proper way to obtain perfectly reliable knowledge of the divine attributes is by study of God's self-revelation in Scripture. Man does not elicit knowledge from God as he does from other objects of study, but God conveys knowledge of himself to man, a knowledge which man can only accept and appropriate. I think that's an important reminder when you come to an attribute of God that is hard to understand, it's important to remember when you come to an attribute of God that is not particularly popular today, that's certainly true when we talk about God's wrath. There's things when it comes to God's wrath wrath that are hard to wrap your arms around and really take in. And it's certainly not something that's popular amongst preachers and authors and speakers and songwriters today. Several of the authors I read this week just came out and made the point, you know, most people don't talk about this much anymore. It used to be something that was a a frequent topic of conversation when you were thinking about God and talking about God, but it's something that has sort of fallen out of favor today. You and I don't get the luxury of just not talking about part of who God is because it's not popular or because it's hard to understand. If God reveals himself to us in the Bible... A certain way, Burkhoff is right. All we can do is accept it and appropriate it, is listen to what he says about himself in the Scriptures and to receive the revelation that God has given us of himself. I'll give you one more quote. This is from A.W. Tozer. He says, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. And he said that years ago, decades ago. And he looked around and he said, we have this idea in our churches, this sort of hope against hope that maybe God isn't wrathful and maybe he won't punish people eternally in hell. And he says there's a consequence for that idea. It's a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. And I certainly don't want us to be guilty of distributing that sort of deadly opiate. And so this morning we're going to talk about God's wrath, and we'll start with definition. We'll say a few things here just to try to wrap our minds around what the Bible's talking about. First, the wrath of God is his anger toward all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. So when we talk about God's wrath, we're saying that God is angry, and he is angry, rightly angry, with ungodliness and with unrighteousness. And in your mind, those might be one and the same, but notice what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And Paul separates those two ideas on purpose. And he's trying to get us to see the difference here ungodliness theologians would describe as living your life with little to no thought of God or His glory. That's ungodliness. You just go through life and you have little thought, no affection for God or His glory. Unrighteousness is living your life in complete, utter, bold defiance to God's Word, to His commands. Paul says God's wrath is revealed against both of those things. I would suggest to you that in the United States of America, in the Bible Belt, in churches, at about this time on Sunday morning, there are an awful lot of people thumbing their nose at all the unrighteousness they see in the world, all the blatant, flagrant sin that they see out there. But outside of one hour in a room like this, one day a week, those very same people go the rest of the week living with little to no thought of God or his glory. And it's just worth pointing out, when we think about God's wrath, it's revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Next, God's wrath is the product of God's holiness and our sin. This is the result. When you take God's holiness, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and you mix in our sin The result is God's wrath. God is holy, we're sinful, and his right response to our sin is anger. It's wrath. James Boyce describes it nicely. He says this, the wrath of God is that perfection of the divine nature into which we throw ourselves by our rebellion. Just think about that for a second. I love the way he's phrased it. We tend to want to blame God for his wrath. It's it's his, he's angry, it's his anger management problem. Boyce is saying, no, 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 no. This is just a perfection of God in his character. It's one of his attributes that by our sin and rebellion we throw ourselves into. Don't blame God for the fact that he's angry. Blame yourself. Blame me. Blame you for the fact that God is angry. I think this is one of the most important theological truths that you and I can think about and wrestle with. It's one of these truths that when you get it down into your mind and deep into your bones, and you read through the scriptures, a lot of things that once seemed confusing and unclear become very, very clear. These two themes run all the way through the Bible. God is holy, and we are sinful, and the result is He's angry. He's angry. He's wrathful. And When you see those two themes repeated all the way through the Bible, you understand this is a major biblical idea. This is not just like a footnote about God's character. This is something that begins in Genesis 3 and runs all the way through the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are over 20 different words used to describe God's wrath or his anger. In the New Testament, there are only two. Two Greek words sum it all up. But you find those words on the lips of John the Baptist telling people to repent and flee from the wrath to come. You hear those words on the lips of Jesus. We'll read some of those verses here in just a minute. You read those words in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament authors. You even hear those words and those ideas that God is angry with sin and he's going to do something about it. You even read it from the lips. Think about this the lips of Christians who have died and gone to heaven. Christians who have died and are now in heaven waiting for God to sum all things up in the end. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 6. They, believers who have died, they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth in the book of Revelation is phraseology, it's code word for unbelievers. Just think about this. You have believers in heaven looking at God who is sovereign. He can do anything. He's holy. He is angry with sin. And they ask God a question. God, how long is it going to be until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And do you know what God says to this? He does not say... Shame on you for asking a question like that. Why would you say something so mean-spirited? You know what he says? Just wait a little while longer. Just wait a little while longer. Just wait, and it's going to happen. It's a major, major biblical theme. Here's one thing I need you to understand. God's wrath is shaped by his character. You can't divorce his anger and his wrath from all of his other attributes. Psalm 7, 11 is a good example of what I'm trying to say to you. It says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation. There's one of those words for wrath or anger, indignation. He feels indignation every day. Day. and the psalmist is saying to you, God's indignation, his wrath, his anger towards sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness, it's not petty, it's not blown all out of proportion, it's not sent upon the wrong, innocent victim. He is a righteous judge. Everything he does is right, and nothing he does is wrong. Everything he feels is right, and nothing he feels is Is wrong. His righteousness governs his wrath. His omniscience governs his wrath. He never exercises his wrath without knowing all the relevant pieces of information. Sometimes, on a human level, that happens. You blow up or you get angry at somebody, or even in a court of law, we make a judgment or decision. We don't have all the evidence. God has all the evidence, He knows everything. And his omniscience governs his wrath. I'll give you an example of what I'm trying to say to you here. Two weeks ago, yesterday, I went to a girls' basketball game, middle school girls' basketball game in Wink, Texas. Compass Academy was playing in a tournament in Wink. It was our last games of the year. So I drive over. My little kids had basketball in Midland. So Brooke took the little girls to basketball in Midland. I went with Emma over to Wink, and we were playing Van Horn, okay? I've never been to Van Horn. I'm sure it's a nice place. If any of you are from Van Horn, I don't mean any offense. But in this game, Compass versus Van Horn, the Van Horn parents were mouthy. And they were mostly mouthy at their own coach. It was very awkward. They had a lot of sideline coaching going on. They also had some feedback for the referees. Some constructive criticism for the, rest of the referees. Most of it was really directed toward their coach. Some of it was directed toward the referees. And so we watched this game. Uh, it was the end of the day. The referees were tired. They didn't want to call anything. They just wanted the clock to run and wanted to get out of there. If you remember, last Sunday, I didn't have much of a voice. That was not because I was yelling on Saturday, in fact, on Saturday, I didn't have much of a voice and I thought to myself, okay, you got to stay calm because if you start screaming at this game, you're not going to be able to scream at the people on Sunday. So don't say much. So I didn't say much of anything. I just kind of sat there and rolled my eyes and the game goes on and it's at the very end of the game. There's about a minute left in the game and somebody calls a timeout or there's an out of bounds or something. There's a stoppage. And the referee is over talking with the scores table on the opposite side of the gym. And he's kind of pointing, and he's looking backwards. And all of a sudden, this man gets up. He's the principal of Wink. He's the host principal of the tournament. He gets up. Girls are coming out of the timeout. He walks around the end of the gym. And he comes over to where I'm sitting. And he walks right up to me, and he says, Sir, you have been kicked out of the game. That was exactly what I said. It's exactly what I said. Now look, I got to this point in the story last week in a finance team. I was telling a story to a finance team. And you know what Chris Ray said when I got to that point in the story? He said, I'm kind of proud of you. (laughs) A couple weeks ago at a game, the Catholic priest, one of the priests almost got kicked out of the game, and he got rebuked. And I think Chris feels like I need to work on my street cred. So he's... He's nodding, he's like, I'm proud of you, that's good. Don't let the Catholics outdo us, I like it. (laughs) So the guy says, sir, you've been kicked out of the game. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I, I don't know what happened, but he sent me over here and he said, the guy in the green has to go. So I was wearing, some of you have seen it, my obnoxious highlighter green jacket. It's so obnoxious that sometimes when I wear it, some of you have very kindly said, now, that's a green jacket. <laughs> and uh, I've said, yes, it is a green jacket. And some of you have said, why did you buy that jacket? And there's a reason. The reason is I had a black one, and the zipper broke, and I sent it back. And they said, we're out of, out of your size in black. And I said, well, give me gray. We're out. Give me blue. We're out. I said, what do you have? Highlighter green. That's what we got. And I said, send me one. I'll take it. So I got this highlighter green jacket, and the principal comes over. And he looks at me and he says, you got to go. You've been kicked out. He said, the guy in green has to go. And I'm looking at my jacket like, well, obviously, that's me. I didn't really say anything. Now, here's an interesting part of the story. I told you my wife was not with me, right? She's in Midland, sitting right next to me. I, I really thought I had lucked out here. One of our elders, Jason Westfall, he's sitting right next to me. And this guy comes over and he says, yeah, you've been kicked out. you got to go. And you know what I thought was going to happen? I thought Jason Westfall was going to stand up, put his foot down, and look at that principal and the ref and say, you are a lion, dog face, pony soldier. <laughs> no way. And do you know what Jason Westfall did? Allison Westfall works here at the church, sitting right down. She's turning sideways in her seat. And I'm like, I guess I'm gone. I guess I got kicked out. There was like 30 seconds left. We had taken the lead. It really wasn't in jeopardy. And I thought, you know what, I'll just get up and go. And I start to get up. And the referee, across the gym, sees me get up, and he blows his whistle. And I'm like, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And he runs across the gym, and he says, Not that guy in green, that guy in green. And one of them Van Horn parents was a little too mouthy. And the ref heard it, and they got kicked out, and I got to watch the last 30 seconds. But it was close. It was close. I thought it was my first ejection from a middle school basketball game. It was a miscarriage of justice just that far away. Now look. In a basketball game, sometimes you look across the gym and you see a guy in green and you get him mixed up. And you say, that guy's got to go, that guy can stay, and maybe there's a miscommunication and wires get crossed. In a court of law, to be a little more serious, sometimes we convict the wrong person. Sometimes we hear the arguments back and forth and we make the wrong decision. There's even examples you can look at where we have executed the wrong person. Capital punishment on the wrong person. That's happened. Understand this when we're talking about God's wrath. On a human level, we might kick the wrong person out of the gym. We might send the wrong person to jail. We might execute the wrong person. God has never sent the wrong person to hell. Ever. He is a righteous judge. Every time he expresses his anger, it's right. It's never wrong. He never lacks information. He never explodes with his anger and then steps back and thinks, oh, I shouldn't have handled it that way. All of his other attributes, his holiness, his perfection, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his sovereignty, his holiness, they govern God's expression of his wrath. His wrath is shaped by his character. One last thought as we mention hell. Hell is the fullest and the final experience of God's wrath. Be done with any idea you have of Satan controlling hell, Satan running hell, Satan torturing people in hell. That is not the biblical idea of hell. In the Bible, hell is the fullest and the final expression of God's wrath. Our culture tends to laugh at hell and joke about hell. Jesus did not think it was funny at all. In fact, you read this in Luke 12. Jesus said, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. In Jesus' mind, this is something that we should be fearful of. Now look, you and I, when it comes to God's wrath and judgment and hell, We've got to be aware of what our culture tells us about all of those things that may or may not line up with Scripture. So we've got to be aware when our culture departs from the biblical teaching of God and His wrath. We also have to be aware of our Christian subculture and things that sometimes get said about God that may or may not line up with Scripture. And I'll just give you one example of these. There's an idea that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. You maybe heard people say that at some point in time. I just want to suggest to you it's not biblically accurate or practically helpful. I understand why people say it. And if you've said it, I'm not trying to shame you or embarrass you or tell you, you your theology is terrible. I understand why people are saying it. People look at the Bible and they say, okay, somehow i got to fit all this together about God. All right, It's, it's all got to be in one coherent truth about his character. And the Bible tells me he's angry, he's wrathful, he, he feels indignation, he's mad. The Bible also tells me he's gracious, and he's loving, and he's patient, and he's forgiving. And we're trying to hold all of those things together. I just don't think this is how we hold it together. This is not how the Bible talks about how God feels towards sin and sinners. And I could give you a incredibly long list of verses I'm just going to give you four I just want you to read these verses with me I want you to think about what they say do they communicate this idea that God hates sin but loves the sinner look what we read in Psalm 5 the boastful shall not stand before your eyes you, that's God, hate all evildoers not just their evil but the evildoers that's what it says You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Later in the book of Psalms, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. He's talking about sinful people and he says, God, it would be right for you to pour your anger out not just on the bad things they do, however that would work, but on the people who do them, on them. Two more verses, one from Jeremiah Behold, the storm of the Lord, Jeremiah uses that to talk about God's wrath and his judgment. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. They will experience this wrath. If you think, well, that's a bunch of Old Testament mumbo-jumbo, look at the Gospel of John. This is Jesus himself. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him on her if you do not believe in Jesus god's wrath rests on you so i don't think it's biblically accurate to say well god hates bad things but he just he can't help but love the people that do them those two things are very much connected in the scriptures god is wrathful towards sin and he is wrathful towards sinners and i also don't think this idea in addition to being biblically faithful is practically helpful at all, because the reality is none of us agree on who should be the object of God's wrath. If we're just going to separate people from their bad behaviors, well, which ones are we going to separate? Are we going to do that for Hitler and say God was really angry with the things that he did, but he just couldn't help but loving Hitler? Are we going to do that with people who hurt and abuse children unrepentantly, or are we going to say, well, God God doesn't like what you did, but he just got the biggest soft spot for you. He can't help it. I don't think it's practically helpful to speak in that way. In fact, I think the only way, biblically, that you can separate the sinful actions from sinful people is at the cross. It's not just a vague, well, I hope he hates the bad things but loves me anyways. But it's at the cross that we get, begin to make a distinction between sin and sinners. So I want you to take your Bible. I want you to look at Romans chapter 5. I just want to read a few verses with you, and then I'll give you a few thoughts as we wrap up. Romans 5, verse 6. Scripture says this, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you remember what we read in Romans? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the idea. He didn't just die for us. Sins, but he died for sinners. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, by Christ, from the wrath of God. His blood has brought justification to our lives, and now we have salvation from God's wrath. Why? Because he died for the ungodly. Verse 6. It's because while we were still sinners, verse 8, Christ died for us verse 10 if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life more than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation listen there's about a hundred things I'd like to tell you about that verse and I'm going to take the 100 and boil it down to three very simple. You ready? We are saved by God, from God, for God. I think that's the essence of what Paul's telling us in that paragraph. We are saved by God, from God, for God. Who is it that saves us? Verse 6 says it's Christ. He died for the ungodly. If you look down uh, just a little bit later, it talks about the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. That's what Corey read in verse 5 earlier. We don't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We have caused the problem. Remember what Boyce said, we have thrown ourselves into this perfection of God through our sin and our rebellion. We are the problem causers. We are the sinners. We're the objects of his wrath. We're his enemies. God is the one who saves us. He sends his son, Jesus the Son of God, to die for us while we were ungodly sinners. He sends the Holy Spirit and pours him into our hearts to give us life when we're dead. God is the one who saves us. We do not save ourselves. And who is it that we're saved from? Some people would say, well, we're saved from the power of sin. That's true. Biblically true. Some people would say, well, we're saved from the world, this wicked, fallen world. Also biblically true. Some would say we're saved from the power of Satan. True, very true, important and true. Ultimately, what we're saved from is not just sin, is not just the world, is not just the devil, is from the wrath of God. We're saved by God from God. That's what he says in verse 9. We have been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Who are we saved for? Ultimately, it's for God. Throughout this paragraph, Paul talks about reconciliation. He says we've been reconciled. We've been brought back into a relationship with God. We were his enemies, but through Jesus, we've been reconciled to the Father. And you add it all up, and I think the the obvious takeaway is this we are saved by God from God's wrath for God to have a relationship with Him. When you get that, when you get it, it changes your eternity and it changes you now. So, just quickly, I want to make a few suggestions. How should we live in light of God's wrath? Number one, we should fear and worship. When you understand this attribute of God, you should be fearful and you should worship, both. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's fearful to understand that your life is in God's hands, that he's holy and that you're a sinner. That should evoke fear in your heart. The Bible says fear is the beginning of worship and it's the beginning of wisdom. We fear God, and we worship God. Here's what I'm saying to you. You don't need to apologize for the fact that God is wrathful. He doesn't need a a PR firm to come in and clean up his image in the 21st century. He's not asking you to go out and have some great explanation for who he is or what he's like that will appease all of those people who detest the idea that he would be wrathful and angry towards sin. It's not something that we apologize for. It's actually something we worship God for. Just walk with me down a little thought experiment. I've told you multiple times, you and I don't get to dream up any God we want. In fact, every week I've tried to give you a quote, a reminder. We listen to what God has said about himself in the Bible. That's how we determine what he's like. But just walk with me down a very short thought experiment. So many people today say, I don't like the idea that God's angry or wrathful. I would never, could never, will never worship a God like that. Think about what those people are saying for a second. This deep sense of justice and injustice that we feel when we look at evils and wrongs in the world. Are you telling me that the God who exists, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, and completely sovereign, doesn't care about those things? You're telling me he doesn't care about the Holocaust? He doesn't care? There's no wrath for that, for people who hurt children? There's no consequence for that? Is that what you're telling me, that there's a divine being up there who sees all of the suffering and evil that we experience in this world? He sees all of it. He knows all of it. And he looks at it and says, eh. No big deal. I don't know that that's very comforting. There may be some areas in life where we disagree about right and wrong and what is God angry with and what is he not angry with, and that's usually the gray area that people try to operate in when they say this sort of thing, like I just would never believe in a God who would be angry about that. But you, if you believe in a God, have got to believe, I think for moral sanity, that he does care about wrong, that he cares about evil and suffering and pain. And for all of those people who say, no, he doesn't care, that sort of sense of justice is just, you know, it's man-made and selfish. Steal five bucks from those people. Key their car. See if they're outraged. See if they think there should be a consequence. It's not something we apologize for. We fear God and we worship. Secondly, we should hate what God hates. And I put this in here with a caveat that there are many, Old Testament and New Testament, biblical injunctions, commands to love your neighbor. So I'm not giving you license to go out and be hateful to your neighbor. But I'm just saying there are things that God hates. There are things that make him angry and those things should make us angry. Psalm 119, just to give you a few examples of this from the scriptures, the psalmist says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. I see people forsaking your law, and the psalmist says, that makes me angry. His heart lines up with God's heart. says the same thing a few verses later. Through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. When I understand the truth, and when I understand what is good from the Bible, I see what's wrong and what's false, And I don't like it. There should be a sense in which we hate the things that God hates. Thirdly, we should, quote, fly from the wrath to come. Fly from the wrath to come. And I put that in quotes because I'm stealing it from a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards lived a long time ago. He's a very smart guy, and he preached a sermon. It's the most famous sermon that's ever been preached on the wrath of God, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Chances are at some point in your high school years or your college years, if you took an English class, you had to read excerpts of this sermon. He preached it twice. He preached it once at this church on the left that was in Massachusetts. That was his church. He preached it later, uh, visiting another church in Connecticut. In this sermon, he talks about God's wrath. He talks about God's holiness, and he talks about our sin, and he very skillfully explains when you mix God's holiness with our sin, the result is God's wrath. And he uses very vivid imagery to talk about God's wrath and to help us understand the gravity of our situation before God. He says things like this. He says, God's wrath is like a, a thunderstorm over your head, ready to just break loose with rain and thunder and lightning. It's just waiting. And the only thing that holds it back is not your goodness, but it's God and his patience. But it's right there over your head. He says things like this. Some people get uncomfortable, but he says, God's wrath is like a bow and arrow, and the arrow is pulled back tight, and it is aimed at your heart. And it would be right for him to vent his anger on you. He's holy and you're a sinful. It's pulled back. The arrow is tight. All he has to do is let it go. It's his patience that hangs onto that arrow. He describes our situation like a, a spider hanging from a thread over a flame. And he says, our sin before God makes us not just like a spider on its web over a fire, but like a rock tied to the bottom of that spider's web. All it has to do is fall. We experience God's wrath. My guess is in your English class, those are the excerpts you read. And you come away and you say, wow, that's some hellfire and brimstone preaching. That guy was grouchy. Our preacher just tells stories about jean green jackets and getting kicked out of basketball games. I'm glad I don't have to listen to that. And you come away thinking, what a grouch. And a lot of times in these English classes, you don't get to the end of the sermon. And he talks about God's holiness, and he talks about God's wrath, and he he paints the picture exactly as the Bible paints it. But he ends with a call that we would fly from the wrath to come. And he says this. He says, therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ. What he means is, everyone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let everyone who is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Run to Jesus. You can do that today. You can hear the word of God. You can hear what we've read in the book of Romans. You can hear the scriptures we've looked at, and you can say, it's clear that God is a holy God, and it's clear that I'm a sinful person, and it's clear that that causes a problem between me and God. That makes me his enemy, makes me an object of his wrath. You can agree with God about that situation and you can believe, not in some sentimental greeting card idea that, well, God hates sin but loves sinners, but that at the cross his wrath was poured out on his son so that you could be forgiven so that you could be justified, so that you could be reconciled into a right relationship with God, so that you would not have to experience His wrath. You can believe that this morning. Some of you have never done that. You can do it today. You can fly from the wrath to come, and you can run to Jesus. As a church family, we're about to celebrate that truth. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And when we take the Lord's Supper, there is certainly an acknowledgment that we are coming before a holy God, and there is certainly an acknowledgement that we are not holy people, and there's certainly an acknowledgement that God's wrath should be poured out on us, but there's also the, the celebration that Jesus died to save us. God came to save us. He came to save us not just from the devil, not just from the world, not just from sin, but from His wrath. And he did that by taking God's wrath in our place on the cross. And now we've been reconciled. We've been brought into God's family. And we don't enter in with a long laundry list of all the good things we've done for God or all the good things we promised to do for God. We enter in on our knees humbly saying, God, I'm a sinner and you're a holy God. And the only way that you and me can be right is through Jesus. We celebrate that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to ask you to bow, and I just want you to take a minute to reflect on God, reflect on His character. Take a minute to confess sin. Take a moment to thank God for what He has done for us through Christ.